This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. Hello, everybody, and welcome to By the Book. I'm Lee Chuilin. Joining me, as always, is my fellow enjoyer of science fiction, Shamila Ganesan. Hello. And today it is our monthly book club episode. Uh, we are going to be talking about The Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi. And it has a number of themes in it, biotechnology, global warming, gene hacking, we'll get into that. Um, and so we knew we needed somebody to come on and read the book with us who would be able to relate, I think, a little more closely with those themes, which is why we invited Kenneth Chai to join us. He is the president of uh, Science. You, we've had him on the show elsewhere before. Uh, and he also works in modern agriculture. Kenneth, thank you so much for joining us for this book club. Sure. So I don't know how much we should say of the plot because it's quite a dense plot, which we can get into later on. But I think it's worth saying that The Wind-Up Girl is set in our region. Specifically, it's set in um, 23rd century Thailand, in which rising tides have essentially left Bangkok as a city surrounded by levees to keep out ocean water. And more crucially, um, the world's food supply has been so deeply diminished and is so deeply controlled by specific companies that they are essentially able to destroy entire countries by refusing to give them food, refusing to sell them food, so on and so forth. And we are dropped right into this world with some intrigue, I suppose, you know, in the form of Anderson Lake, a character from the United States with shady intentions. And then um, the plot keeps unfolding from there. So, um, Kenneth, I wanted to know what were your first impressions after reading the book? I kind of pushed it on you. I apologize. What did you make of it? I think in the beginning, it's like when as a sci-fi fan, um, I don't read a lot of sci-fi books. So I, I, the, the, most of the book I read are usually boring general fiction. But this time, I sort of like uh, entered the world building. It's like I'm more interested to find out this world. And I actually read it in a way that it would be turned into a movie, if you get what I mean. So straight away, I visualized Bangkok. I used to live in Bangkok. Uh, <laughs> half of my family is Thai. And I will be going to Thailand soon. So a lot of things actually make sense, Yeah, which we will go into later. Like a lot of things make sense uh, if you, especially if you see it from a Thai perspective. So I don't even live in Thailand. I've only really visited different parts of the country for holidays. And even then, I think the the specificity of the world building in this book, the specificity of capturing a sort of feel, not just of Thailand, but of Southeast Asia, just the how it might look and, and sound and the heat and what people and cultures are like. I think this book did such a great job. I think one thing that's worth mentioning about the plot is that while it is very much centred around um, Bangkok or, or Thailand, uh, it very much engages with geopolitical issues, of course, future geopolitical issues. So it kind of takes what we know of Southeast Asia and the world and then extrapolates what that future might look like. And I enjoyed all of that very much. Um, And I think that's one of the biggest strengths of the book, the fact that Bajigalupi clearly knows a lot about this region and then has done a really good job centering this great futuristic science fiction story around those things. Um, It's referred to as biopunk, which I really love because it's got so much to do with biology and, and genetics. I think the author mentioned that this is a perfect time to read this book because the author said that when he wrote the book, he was quarantined in Bangkok during the SARS-1. <laughs> yes. 
So actually, that was something that I kept thinking about because I I bought this book a long time ago. I've had it um, sitting around waiting to be read. And then this year, for some reason, I decided, okay, you know, I'm finally going to pick it up, get through it. And it's such a weird time because, of course, the whole premise of bioterrorism is a big theme in the book. Um, this idea of plagues arising from arising inadvertently from people trying to make something else, from people trying to create electricity in this case. Um, and just the the knowledge that this is a world in which there have actually been several plagues. Um, it's it's kind of referenced. They don't really go into it. But you know that this is a world that is accustomed to food instability, that is accustomed to new diseases arising and wiping out either people and animals or plants. And so to read that in an actual real-life pandemic that we were all going through was actually kind of very specific and very strange. Oh, completely. Um, you know, I, I'm both really glad that I read it at this time, but also slightly disheartened. And that's not the fault of the book. It's it's just the time we live in. Um, because I think reading about such a bleak future, depending on what sort of mental space you're in, may not always be the the, the sort of nicest thing to read right now. Even, even everything, it, it engages a lot with themes of climate change and environmental responsibility. And that too, I think for me felt... You know, a part, a part of me at some points of the book was like, oh my God, like hundreds of years in the future and we're still like this. And I know that that's a common theme in science fiction. It's just not always the happiest of reads. But I think it's a very smart book um, because it really does get at the heart of a lot of things that we're grappling with right now. And it does that the the thing that a lot of really great science fiction does, which is use the future to help you reflect on your present. Kenneth, I wanted to ask you, basically about the science because I think both Sharmila and I have um, opinions about how the science was written into the book but I think you stand the best shot of actually understanding um, what was what was written about so what did you make of um, how the how the science was talked about and how it was developed into the story I think it's a mirror because uh, what is uh, what, what what he uh, is an exaggeration of what's happening right now so I think um, we're talking about gene hacking, right? So it's just a fancy word uh, for uh, genetically modified uh, food, things that we eat. And he tried to stretch it towards human, but let's go there later. So um, I think this is many of the world's largest seed companies that he mentioned is actually a mirror of what we have today. Monsanto, Bayer. So they're actually doing all these things. Uh, even in Thailand, the biggest seed company, CP, is doing the same thing. So what they do is um, it's enabled by the 1980s. I think the patent office allows every corporation to patent seed. It was a landmark decision. And after that, every company with the money, with the, with the resources actually patented seeds. So right now, if you are a farmer, you want to grow a certain food, you have to buy the seeds from this company. But the problem is these seeds, after you harvest it, the entire crop dies. It's sterile. So that's a problem. So if you want to buy the seed again from the company, the company will say, no, I don't want your, 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 your money. I want your produce. So they negotiated a rate with your produce, which is usually um, on, uh, not on the farmer's advantage, right? So uh, they go into this uh, cycle where they're being uh, subjugated. And the problem is this company also uh, produce, for example, wheat killer. Monsanto sells this wheat killer called Roundup. Have you guys read about it? So Roundup is a wheat killer that kills everything including uh, insects and everything. And then their seed is resistant to Roundup. So to farmers that use Roundup, they can only buy their seed. 
And to farmers that buy their seed, they can only round out. So you see where that goes, right? Uh, the global resistance right now against GMO has nothing actually against the technology on its own, but it's about how GMO is being weaponized right now by these corporations, just because they can be uh, they can patent it. So I think right now we can understand when uh, you see the um, a lot of companies are trying to patent even um, mRNA, the vaccines. So I, I know there's two sides of things. All these things are being um, made possible and popular because of the, invent, uh, the discovery of CRISPR. There are so many good things that can happen out of it. Like with CRISPR, right? They are trying to uh, solve cancer right now. And then I think just recently, they, they used CRISPR to cure muscular dystrophy, leukemia, and even try to eradicate uh, malaria. So there are good things that come out from it. I usually tell people, don't be afraid of science. There are always two things. Human will always find a way to, just like the book, there are good sides and bad sides of it. Yeah, that's what I think from the gene hacking. So I I was just going to say, I, you didn't help me with feeling better about the future. Right. No, but... <laughs> so much worse. <laughs> yeah, the ethical debate right now is centered in editing human genes, of course. Mm. Allowing us, like, you know, those who can afford it, to have designer babies. So right now, we should ask ourselves, what's stopping the next uh, regulation that allows corporations to pattern this? Yeah. <laughs> and the book kind of talks about those things as well, right? Because the idea of the genetics, it's also extended beyond just the food we eat to uh, people. And and that's where the, the wind-up girl of the title kind of sits. Because without giving too much away in terms of the part that she plays in the story, she actually is a, a, a created being. Um, she's genetically modified and created for a specific purpose. But I wanted to pick up on something you said about there being both good and uh, bad people, because that's one of my favourite things about this book. The fact that it gives us actually a pretty large cast of characters from various levels of the society and none of them are truly hateable or likable. They all have their own motivations and the story keeps switching viewpoints so you see different people from different characters' viewpoints and so I thought that really gives you an idea of the, I think, the challenges of existing with, within these structures where you have just difficult choices to make and often you can't see beyond, say, the next couple of steps. And so you try and make the best choice you can without necessarily knowing where that might lead. They're all trying to survive, yeah. The wind up girl part actually uh, put me, like, I think I told Lynn this before, it stuck in my head. I thought about it a lot uh, during showers and I had deep conversation with my wife. And I think when whenever the, the author talk about Emiko is where I actually felt disappointed because, okay, this is my personal opinion, right? It's like, uh, how do I say it? It actually amplified the Asia, the culture, the, the feminine colonial object. You know, the rape of the Orion, if I can say it that way. Yeah. So the one up girl is actually referring to the sex workers you see on the street in the daytime. So, you know, Thailand, daytime and nighttime is totally different thing if you stand on the same spot. So the drug, lifeless looking and, and the way to escape the misery. This is actually the sex workers from the rural suburbs, um, neighboring countries promise a paradise in Thailand and waiting for a white guy to rescue them the farang to come and rescue them so they can send their family back. So the abuse, the, 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 the humanizing thing, right, about Amiko, right, it's actually the actual sufferings that we, the sex workers happening right now in Thailand caused by the exact same problem by the Vietnam War back then. Thailand created the sex tourism during the Vietnam War. So it's like we Southeast Asia is always being stereotyped as a garbage dump for the West to, you know, to, to find a gym. It's like they have to come to uh, Southeast Asia the enigmatic uh, Vietnam, Cambodia to, to, to discover and rescue someone. So I 
Personally, I didn't like this because uh, I empathize with how people think. Because I always get this a lot when I tell people my wife is Thai. It's like, oh, which pub do you meet her? Mm. I, I didn't like that. I totally get it, and I think that this is something um, that this is something that I felt quite keenly as well. Um, I wanted to talk about it later on, but I I feel as if the there are some times in the book where the way that the author writes about Southeast Asia was very sensitive and very well handled. And then there were other times where I thought, okay, these are who's not from here, who is white, essentially, um, writing about our region. And so I think it is that push and pull and it's best exemplified actually in the scenes with Emiko because she goes through a lot and she goes through a lot very graphically within the book as well. And so there there were times I absolutely agree where that was very hard to read. Yes. We're going to continue our conversation. We are talking today about Paolo Bacigalupi's The Wind-Up Girl, which takes place in a world post-climate change uh, or as climate change is still happening that brings together all these themes about food stability, about biohacking, and we all enjoyed it with some reservations. So we'd like to know, um, is this a book that you'd be keen on reading? Have you read it? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, and write to us at bythebook at bfm.my. Best Flipping Moments, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, everybody. You are listening to Buy the Book with Lynn and Sharmila. It is our monthly book club episode. We're joined today by Kenneth Chai, president of Party Science, uh, someone who also works in modern agriculture and um, someone who has roots in Thailand. All very important things uh, for the book that we're talking about, which is Paolo Bacigalupi's The Wind-Up Girl. So um, I think that before we go further, there were two things that I wanted to talk about. One being uh, something that you brought up earlier, Kenneth, which is the the cultural aspects that the book explores. Uh, but the other thing is the characters. And I thought we could start with the characters. Did we like them? Because I did not think they were that important. <laughs> oh, um, I, and, I, and I, I kept saying this to Lynn as I was reading the book that um, the characters are not the book's strong suit. I didn't really feel emotionally connected to them. It's the world, uh, right? Yeah, it's the world. So you're, you're excited to travel through this world with them. But... In the end, I, I didn't find myself... In fact, there's probably one character who I just really uh, felt connected to. And then that character doesn't play a very huge part. Um, so it, it's just unfortunate. And I wish that part was better because I feel like this world is so rich that I would have loved to to be more engaged emotionally in the journeys of these people. I think that's why the author wrote... Um the, I won't call it a sequel, Calorie Man after this. Have you guys read it? I, I plan to get it after this in Bangkok. <laughs> I haven't read it yet. <laughs> I'll read it in my quarantine. I, I feel as if the characters are there to further the plot. And the plot is there to allow for the world to be uh, developed. And so it all comes back to world building. Because um, I will say this, that the the book starts with a flurry of character introductions. You meet Anderson Lake, you meet um, Hock Sing, who is an interesting character that we can talk about a bit more, someone who works in the factory. You meet Emiko, the wind-up girl. But I think of all those different scenes, the one that stood out to me was the moment where Anderson Lake, um, the calorie man character, first encounters what is clearly, to us, we know, a rambutan and is completely... <laughs> hey, spoiler alert. Hello. <laughs> It is right there. It is in the first chapter. I, I have to admit, um, I felt a little bit of self-satisfaction thinking, I know it's a Rambutan because I'm from Southeast Asia, <laughs> but what about all these Western readers? Who's going to be like, oh, a red fruit. But um, yeah, I mean, 
And actually, the way that he wrote about the encountering of, of that fruit, of that food item, the way he wrote about the markets that contained all these foods, that was actually the most evocative part for me in the early chapters. And I think that tells you something about the author's priorities, whether he cares more about the characters or he cares more about the world setting. Uh, the characters itself, right, the main characters that are uninteresting, I think that was um, the author trying to put into the Thai uh, social economic Thai, also the Thai representation of the culture and everything. So, you know, Thailand is always a geopolitical, geopolitically called the Switzerland of Pacific for being, you know, different, neutral. Okay, since I'm going to Thailand in a few days and you guys are, I don't know when you guys are going to air this, I really have to watch what I say about the country right now. <laughs> okay, so how the, accurately the author actually portrays the monarchy in this book. So I, I, I discussed a lot about monarchy with my wife. Um, and subtle things that appear in the rivalry between the Ministry of Military and the Queen playing an active role uh, definitely rang many bells if you read it from a Thai's perspective. So it, I think the author did ask a lot of Thai before he write all the rivalry there. So all this author, if you read it, you know who is he referring to, you know, during the Thaksin time in uh, 10 years ago. Many people would say that Thailand was never colonized by Western powers, but the author met us know that they are culturally colonized instead of, you know, like Malaysia. There was one thing I wanted to bring up because, um, like you said, I, I don't know when I'll next be in Bangkok or in Thailand. Um, it's been a while, actually, since I've actually been into the country. But did you recognize Bangkok in the book? I mean, did you, yeah. did you feel that it was done well? The heat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I was brought into Bangkok right away when he was, you know, you guys uh, find out the Rambutan later because he was describing it, right? I straight away know more is Rambutan. <laughs> I almost feel like you can recognize the body language and the the way Thai people speak or, or express themselves in yes, their subtleties um, and things like that. Yes, yes. That's a thing here. I think in, in the early chapters, right, when um, he first described Emiko, right, I think he mixed it up with the Gisha of uh, Japan, uh, Japan. So it's like, you know, he moves towards a the stage with careful steps of, um, you know, stylized, deliberate movement, all these things. If you have been, I'm not saying that I have been, to uh, Pong and all these things, this is exact opposite. Thai women um, in the sex tourism industry, if I may go into sensitive area, if you go into how the sex uh, tourism in, in, in Thailand, they were never portrayed as somebody uh, weak or soft or, or, or polite. Yeah, so this is how, how uh, the author mixed it up with the Japanese geisha where, or, or the Chinese, you know, they got them, they hug. The Thai women, they don't do that. The way he portrayed women, I also didn't like when, you know, there are certain ways that um, Emiko was being called, you know, nasty dog, a an engineered beast, almost human. So I think, yeah, I didn't like that. That, that was the only part where I didn't like. It was very di uh, difficult for me to read that part. I, I, I'm not sure. I want to mm. hear, like, uh, as a woman, how do you guys feel when you read it? Actually, in general, I didn't enjoy any of the, or most of the scenes involving Emiko, even though she plays yeah. such a pivotal role, right? Um, but I think the way that she's treated, it stretches out over chapters and the the point was made even within the first chapter. We, we didn't need to keep drumming on about it. Um, and I think what, what I thought he did do well with Emiko is when she was dealing with her own programming and I thought that was interesting and how she had to push past what she had been engineered to behave like or accept and go beyond that and her struggles with that that was really interesting but others regard of her I really struggled with I really did not yeah. like so much so I wanted to just extend that point about Emiko to say 
we it's worth remembering the book came out in 2009 and i think that how people write speculative fiction and science fiction has changed and you know the standards for how you write women in them in particular has actually changed but looking at something from that time i actually see how I mean, we're talking about the future here and still ideas of yeah. gender are actually pretty normal, um, which seems a little unbelievable to me. And then, of course, the whole, that concept of using a central subjugated woman to, to get your point across it also feels kind of tired. So I completely agree that while she is a titular character, Emiko is not the strongest, even though she does play such an important role in the yeah. book. If the author would have uh, uh, write the book today, it would be a different thing. Yeah. Okay, now the signs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that if we look at the signs, we, we talked about the, the seed banks quite a bit. Um, we talked about the, and we mentioned, I think, this idea of how it is that companies can end up controlling so much of the global market. I did want to touch on energy, though, in closing, because that's actually a really big part of the book. Um, the, while it's set in the future, there are so many times where the, they just don't have electricity or they are living in semi-darkness. Nobody has an aircon, um, you know, and, and that's a very big thing. The heat, like you said, is emphasised over and over again. Um, what did you make of that focus on energy? You know, when, when people say when oil runs, runs out, everyone thinks about, okay, I can't drive my car, I can't have aircon and everything. But this book, this book actually um, talk about different things, talk about food. Because uh, a lot of people are not aware yet that, um, I mean, not, it's not taught in school, that 95% of fertilizer actually made from oil and gas. 95%. So without oil and gas, without um, gas actually, fossil fuel feedstock, the harbor process that combines nitrogen from the air and hydrogen from the gas, there will be no fertilizer. So there will be no rice, no food, everything. So the world population skyrocket because in uh, uh, during World War II, uh, World War I, the Germans uh, needed to make gunpowder. And then the British controls uh, uh, the country, uh, Chile, I think, uh, they have uh, sodium nitrate. The Germans didn't have it. So Karl Bosch and Haber in, uh, uh, discovered this uh, Haber process. So they can just pick nitrogen from air and hydrogen from gas, and then you get ammonia. And okay, ammonia is being turned into nitric acid that makes explosives, ammunitions, but then ammonia is also a key element in fertilizer. So that's why Petronas is uh, the largest uh, fertilizer producer here in uh, Sarawak as well. So everything is made from oil. And so now, suddenly, we run out of oil. Food should be the first thing that uh, we don't have. The next thing that we are worried about should be, you know, medicines that keep us alive. So, you know, you know, even without oil, right, even food packaging is challenging. The plastic, the paper, the ink that prints, everything is made from oil. I think this is where the, um, the dystopia that he is so cold when oil runs out. And this is where the world building is so effective. It's when the author said that, okay, oil runs out. And right now we give you a cold dystopia that everything is almost impossible. Yeah, I think, I think this is where uh, my, my point of energy is that he actually made a lot of people think that, you know, the last thing, that, uh, none of you actually think, hey, where are the aer uh, aeroplanes? Where are the trains? Mm. How, how did he get there? We don't think about uh, him successfully made us not think about those um, transport energy anymore. Even electricity is on, it's not mentioned all the time. He focused on the most important thing, food. On a genre perspective, I also think that that allows him to take 
something like cyberpunk or in this case biopunk and merge mm. it with something like steampunk because it, it it you know it throws back to technology that existed before the uh, motorized eras that we lived through um which yeah. which is really interesting to read about because you're reading this kind of merging of technologies that feels very exciting even though you've seen them before but you haven't seen them in this context yeah but I don't want to be a party pooper because it, it, it is in the 23rd century, right? We can still harvest the sun. You <laughs> <laughs> forgot about that. <laughs> I mean, there's still wind, right? There's still wave energy. There's still nuclear. So I think he didn't go that far. But I mean, I don't want to be a party pooper. <laughs> well, I mean, in that same vein, actually, while we're talking about the world, despite the fact that this world, like we said, is so depressing and so close to home, actually, um, I would have liked to have seen more explanations of how other countries are coping, um, simply because the there are references to... Malaya, for example, explicitly Malaya. He says that over and over again. He does not say Malaysia. Um, and there are also references to how Cambodia is doing. And I think overall, when you understand that um, it takes, I don't know how long for people to get from place to place, how long it takes for someone to get from America to, to Bangkok. Um, I'd, be, I'd love to know how countries are coping with isolation because there's mention of how Thailand is closing down, how it's so difficult. Even the Japanese who previously did business with the Thais have now been forced out. All these different things. And that's really wonderful to read. Not wonderful, like, that makes it sound fun, but it's, um, it's very interesting to read in the context of Thailand. I would love to see how that extends to the region or even the world. Um, I I want to know what happened to Malaya, for example. Yeah, oh, me too. same, same. And Kenneth, you started off earlier by saying um, you could imagine this like a movie. I would 100% love to watch like a TV show with this whole world um, and and not just centred on this story, but what's happening really everywhere under this premise. Why haven't they done it? I think we this show can be the calling for it that needs to happen. And yeah, we can shoot it in Malaysia, right? It's not that different. Yeah. We have rambutan. We have rambutan. That's exactly <laughs> it. <laughs> That's the main thing. Um, and, and also, we might not get in as much trouble shooting it in Malaysia. I think that actually the, um, the stuff that we talked about, the gender, might make it difficult to negotiate um, in translating to a film. But otherwise, it's such a cinematic book. I wanted to close off by asking both of you. I mean, I... I forced both of you to read this book for this show, basically. So you, we all know I would recommend the book. Would you both recommend this book to someone else? Sharmila? I would, but I would caveat it by saying only if you're good with long reads that are quite dense. I already did. My, my wife will read it. My son is too young to read it, but I already recommend it to 3%. My work here is done. Uh, we've been talking. <laughs> we've been talking today about Paolo Bacigalupi's *The Wind Up Girl*, which, um, as I think you might be able to tell from our show, is a complex read, packs a lot of science, a lot of plot into a book that centers on our region, if not our country. So uh, we'd like to know, is this a book that you'd enjoy reading? Is Have you read it? Did you like it? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us at bythebook at bfm.my. And 
that brings us to footnotes. Uh, as we were talking about the wind-up girl before, we one thing that we didn't bring up because we got so heavily into the science and culture of it all is actually the tropes and references that it falls into. So we mentioned that the wind-up girl herself, Emiko, has, I think... Um, there are some issues with female stereotypes, for example. But she's also, to me at least while reading it, the thing that kept coming to mind was Blade Runner and Rachel, um, simply because the other character, Anderson Lake, is so Deckard. So the thing with sci-fi in general is that it's it's so tropey, right? And, and there are some tropes or some conventions that have become so familiar to us that I wonder whether there is really no new way to write about it uh, without people referencing, say, in this case, Blade Runner. Now, uh, The Wind-Up Girl and Paolo Bacigalupi have been compared to William Gibson a lot because of the cyberpunkness mm. of, of the book. Um, and again, I think that's both a, a good and a bad thing, right? Because on the one hand, I liked that Deckard feel. I immediately felt like Anderson Lake reminded me of him in many ways. And then, of course, the relationship with the wind-up girl. Without knowing whether that's what he was going for, though, I wonder whether an author always wants to be saddled with those kinds of comparisons. So I think that when it comes to genre writing, I know we started off talking about sci-fi. This is actually a real hallmark of genre writing as a whole, whether it's sci-fi, fantasy, detective, fiction, noir. It inevitably or... At some point, an author either creates a reference where I'm not even sure if the author is aware of it, but the reader is making that connection, or in some cases directly references the greats of the past. Part of it has to do with the tropey nature of genre writing where, for example, you're going to have a femme fatale, um, you're going to have a detective, you're going to have these these things and you draw them in. Um, another part of it is also sometimes it's almost like you're, you're flashing your credentials and saying, hey... I've read sci-fi or I've read whatever it is and I know. And to your point, I think that sometimes it works in that you bring something up and you develop it in a new and exciting way and then it's it's a reinvented idea. Um, but sometimes it also really bites you because you're referencing a book that perhaps I enjoyed more. <laughs> And sometimes I think these tropes have a bit of a sell-by date. Um, we discussed quite a bit about the um, the way the book portrays women, but all of those genres that you talked about, um, you know, horror, procedurals, thrillers, they all famously have a tendency to not really write female characters very well. They are they're rarely... Or to kill them off. Or to kill them off. Or to make them objects of abuse so that a man can then be a hero or enlightened in some way. Um, and tropes like that, I think, are tropes that I'd be quite glad to see fall by the wayside, especially I think as we get different writers and, and more diverse writers jumping onto the platform. The same thing happens with, say, your Asian characters, right? Or your plucky underdog who comes from the wrong side of the tracks. Um, these are all tropes, I think, that serve a very particular function. But by this point, we all really know what that function already is. I agree with you. But I also think that with writers... Sometimes with some stories, there is a desire to revisit and reinvent. And I think that that has also got a, um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's a risk that you're taking when you try to reference it. Because in the case of uh, The Wind-Up Girl, if we go all the way back to that, she is really subjugated and subservient. And you know, and I don't think it's spoiling anything to say, you know that it's going to head in a different direction. You know that there is going to be an attempt to break out of this, to um, to create and chart her own path, have her own agency. 
But then the question is, did it work? Did we need to delve into this trope in order to have this other character development? And I think in the case of the book, the answer is no. And so to go back to your point about when it is that we're done with tropes or when it is that we no longer want to explore them, I feel like mileages vary. It really depends. Some people, I think, are determined to deconstruct and, and do that as a reader, I have to say I'm not the biggest fan of that approach. I'm only a fan of that approach when they do exactly what you started this with, um, when they when they do it to break it down or when they do it to reinvent it. And we do see a lot of um, writers, especially writers of colour, female writers, um, LGBTQ writers, who take these tropes and then reinvent them or twist them or use them as a commentary of why those tropes can sometimes feel a little empty. And I enjoy it when people do that. I don't, however, enjoy it when it's just done again and again just to make a particular point, uh, the same point over and over again. We've been talking today about tropes and references, particularly when it comes to genre fiction, when it works, when it doesn't. Uh, we'd like to know, do you like it when new writers bring up or re-explore these sorts of tropes, uh, make references explicit or otherwise to specific books? You can share your thoughts with us as always. WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us at bythebook@bfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.